Our Heavenly Father, as we continue our worship of you, we want you to be front and center. We desire that you be glorified, not only in our individual bodies, but in the church and in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us understanding of the text we'll be looking at as we begin a new sermon series on prayer. And so speak through me, encourage your body, build it, make it stronger, more mature. And Lord, teach us how to pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind everybody that just because it is gray and it is a little dark outside and it's getting a little cold, that does not mean that our worship has to match that. It was a little too subdued for me. Okay, It doesn't matter whatever circumstances are, we are to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this closing song that we're going to sing after the sermon really belted out. Because I believe that over this church and every church, especially though in uh, the state of Washington, where we have on the West Coast, it is the number one church for the lowest church attendance, 24%. There is an oppression over this area. There's oppression over this church. How do we repel it? It is through our praise. And so I want to shout it out and, and push back the forces of darkness. And literally, you can feel the darkness because it's, there's just no sun, it seems like, because it's so great right now. But we also will repel it through prayer. But I want to begin this morning by talking about uh, something else. As you know, I, I like movies, and one of my favorite movies is... Do you like that joke that I like movies? My wife just laughed. That's an understatement. Okay. One of my favorite movies is the movie Moneyball. You guys familiar with that movie? Anybody? I thought it was a fascinating movie. To give you some context, it's about Billy Bean, a guy uh, by the name of um, Paul DePodesta is his real name. Um, and they introduced what's called analytics in, into baseball. It was, I think it was the 2002 or 2003 Oakland A's. It's 2002 um, season went into 2003. Anyways, the reason why football is the number one sport in America, do you want to, want to know why, other than it's, a, it's a, the, the physical nature of the game, do you want to know why? It's called a salary cap. That means that each team can only spend so much money. A salary cap does not exist in baseball. We've got to rethink this thing. We've got to look where others aren't looking. We are the last ones at the dog bowl. Do you know what happens to the runt of the litter? He dies. That off-season... Billy Bean embraced mathematics and analytics, and they built a team on a, based upon a new model that they could afford because other teams were undervaluing these players. They went on a 20-game winning streak that, I think, is still intact as the number one, the longest winning streak in the history of baseball. 
made it to the playoffs and won more games with less talent and less payroll than the year before, still to lose in the, in the playoffs. But it has forever changed the way baseball is played. He was actually, I believe, being was then contacted by the Boston Red Sox, offered to be the general manager, paying an outrageous amount of money, been the highest paid general manager in the history of baseball. And he turned it down and stayed at the Oakland Athletics. Embracing his principles, two or three years later, the Boston Red Sox broke the curse of the Bambino. They actually won the World Series since I think it was when they traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees. That was the curse of the Bambino. Anyways, that was the last time they'd won the World Series. But the point is, is that they had to look at reality, and then change the way that they were operating their baseball organization. And I want to take that same principle and apply it to the way that we pray. Because there's what I call, in this the school of prayer, there are some necessary endings and changes that need to take place in regards to how you are praying. Now, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, you may remember this from last year, on the Advent Sermon, Jesus' message was one of change. Get your Bibles out, turn to Matthew 4.17. Matthew 4.17. There are no verses that are up on the screen. We're just going to go right to these uh, verses in our Bibles. But this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is his message. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you may recall that last time I I preached, I said that if I were to reword this particular verse, I would say something like this. And I was Jesus, I would say this. The way that you are currently living your lives will not get you into the kingdom of heaven. And since the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you better change, i.e. repent. So the way you're currently living your lives is what Jesus is saying to his crowds. It's not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. You need to change. Now change is the dominant theme in his first recorded sermon. Now what was his first recorded sermon? The Sermon on the Mount. That's in chapters 5 of Matthew. And so I would summarize the first, or chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew in his Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7, Jesus is giving the standards for his kingdom. If you want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, that's kind of in a nutshell what it is. Your, your life that you're living now isn't good enough. Here are the standards that you must attain to, the life that you need to live to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, these standards for his kingdom are in stark contrast to the supposed standards of that day. Now, the religious leadership had developed a system that they thought was adequate to get them into the kingdom of God. But they were greatly deceived as their religion fell short of God's standard. Now just imagine that you're Jesus. You're telling everybody that you're coming into contact with that the standard you're used to living 
it's not good enough, and you're trying to get them to go to the next level, the next step, to meet God's standards. So in chapter 5, Jesus said that their theology was inadequate. What they thought about love, what they thought about anger, what they thought about getting to heaven. They thought that through their self-righteous living they'd get into heaven, but Jesus says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? Kingdom of heaven. The exact opposite of what they had been taught. In chapter 6, Jesus is about to expose their religious activities as being inadequate. They're giving, they're praying, they're fasting. It's not good enough. It falls short. And so he highlights three illustrations. Again, they're giving, praying, fasting. And this is the backdrop with which Jesus now begins to teach them God's standards. Let's turn to Matthew 6, 5 through 13, as we're going to be looking at prayer. And you'll see where they fall short, and then some instruction in how to pray. Matthew 6, 5 through 13. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So don't do that, is what verse 5 is saying. Verse 6 is, but do this. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret (coughs) will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Don't do this. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you are to pray. Pray then this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The famous Lord's Prayer. Now, for this sermon series, entitled The School of Prayer, we're going to be looking at prayer. And beginning in chapter 6, verse 5, what do we see happening? Well, Jesus begins to attack the prayers of the religious leaders. What I want you to see, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, because I don't want to focus on what not to do as much as what to do, is that their prayers were self-centered. How do we know that? Because they would stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. And for why did they do that? To be noticed, to draw attention to themselves. Therefore, their prayers were self-centered. They prayed before men that they might see how pious they were. What they didn't want, though, is they didn't want anything to do with private prayer. See, they only wanted to be involved in praying that put them on display. Therefore, the very heart of their prayers was their own will and selfish desires. He says, when you pray this way, and I say this as well, it inevitably leads to the second error in their practice of prayer. That's found in verse 7. They engage in a vain repetition or a constant badgering of God. For felt you've done it to God when you pray? Do you keep reminding Him over and over again as if to move Him to give you what you want? Jesus says, 
That type of prayer is more characteristic of what? Gentiles or the pagans, who are always trying to appease their gods. Now, I just want to take a moment here and tell you that, that when I studied this, I find it alarming that this was going on at the time of Jesus. Because the Old Testament was clear on how to pray. And yet, what does Jesus say about their praying? Particularly the religious leaders. The very ones who should have known the Old Testament and taught it to the people. He's saying that the way that they're praying is what? It's inadequate. It's not working. It's not good enough. It doesn't meet God's standards. So what does the Old Testament teach regarding prayer? And that's what we're going to look at for some time this morning. Because we are in the same boat that they were in. Because we have the teaching of our Lord, and yet we really don't know how to pray. Here's a couple of points I want to give you. Actually, it's more than a couple of points, but just sit back and listen. The Old Testament Jews, and I just find this stuff fascinating, they believed that they had a right to come to God because they believed God wanted them there. And this stood out against every other world religion where they were trying to appease a God that didn't love them or care for them. But not the Jews, not their belief in God. Psalm 145.18 says that the Lord is near, and I love this verse, to all who call upon him. Psalm 91.15, when he calls to me, I will answer him, says the Lord. So the Jews believed they had this right to go before God. Number two, the rabbis taught and believed that prayer was not just communication, but it was a mighty weapon. That when you prayed, you could release the power of God. And of course, when you think of prayer and the power of God, does your mind not go back to Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? And how God answered Elijah's prayer and fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. James references that in his letter in James chapter 5. The rabbis also taught that prayer should be constant. Did you know that? That prayer is not some kind of an emergency appeal in a desperate situation, but prayer is an unbroken conversation built around a living, loving fellowship with God. That's what the rabbis taught. Listen to this quote from one of the rabbis. The Holy One says, Just as it is in my office to cause the rain and the dew to fall and make the plants to grow and sustain man, so are thou bound to pray before me and to praise me in accordance with my works. Thou shalt not say, I am in prosperity, wherefore shall I pray? But when misfortune befalls me, then it will come and supplicate. No, before misfortune comes, anticipate and pray. So prayer was to be constant. Number four, prayer should incorporate love and praise, is what the Jews thought. That when you go to God, there ought to be a sense of his worthiness and a loving adoration and praise of him. Psalm 34, 2, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
prayer should also incorporate thanksgiving. Psalm 104. You know this. Enter his courts with what? Thanksgiving in our hearts. Enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. And this is just absolutely fascinating, this quote by a rabbi, and he is right dead on on this. All prayers will someday be discontinued except the prayers of thanksgiving. Because when we're with him, will we be in need of anything? No. What will be needed is what? Praise. Worship. Thanksgiving. Number six. The Jewish people believed that their prayers should incorporate a sense of God's holiness. A sense of awe. A sense of reverence. So they did not rush into the presence of God flippantly. And I fear that that is what has been modeled for us all of our lives in the American church. They did not treat God as if he were a man. They went very reverently before him. And they realized that when they entered into prayer, that they believed that they came face to face with God. One of the most revolutionary verses that aided me in my understanding and practice of prayer is Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3. Solomon writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And that is a totally different approach to prayer than what I think we initially think about prayer. Number seven, the Jews believed in their prayers that there should be a desire to obey God. You didn't go to God in some ritualistic form or in some superficial, shallow approach where you really weren't committed to respond to that communion with obedience. Folks, that's the whole message of Psalm 119. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast, Psalm 119.5, in keeping your your statutes, that I may continue to obey you. Number eight, Jewish prayers incorporated a confession of sin. Psalm 26.6, I will wash my hands in innocence, and then I'll go about thine altar, O Lord. In other words, I will get my life right, I will purify myself through confession, then come before you. Again, another quote from a rabbi. When you weep over your sin, God hears your prayer. The gate of tears is never shut. If you can bring but nothing else to God, bring him your tears, and he will hear. The tears, not just tears of joy, but tears of sorrow for your sin. That type of prayer, God will not. Reject. They believe that the prayer of the righteous would actually turn the heart of God. They said that the prayer of a pure heart, listen to this, overturns the wrath of God as a rake overturns the grain. And so confession 
of sin was just part of their prayers. And finally, number nine, they believed that prayer was to be unselfish. Listen to this. The rabbis had a very interesting prayer. This is what they prayed. Hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. This is funny because we've all done this, I think. I know I have. I'm guilty of this. They say, hear not, O Lord, the prayer of the traveler. Now, why would they pray that? Because the one thing that you pray for when you go on vacation is what? No, good weather. Total immersion, but good weather, right? I want to spend all this money and go to, let's say, Florida, and it just is rain and a hurricane, right? No. The rabbi said, because, don't listen to the prayer of the traveler, because that's one guy on one trip, and he may be praying for a fair day, but everybody else in that part of the world knows that their crops need rain. So they say, don't listen to that prayer, God. And so what happened over the process of time, I mean, that's basically what the Old Testament taught about prayer. What you're going to find out as we go through the Lord's Prayer, He is not changing anything, but rather bringing back to everyone's minds what the Old Testament taught about prayer. But in the process of time, the Jews had abandoned the purity of genuine prayer for the routine and the ritual of their religious exercises. And isn't that so easy for your prayers to become just that? Routine and ritual. Now, are you awake? Am I boring you? Or are you under extreme conviction? Because I can't tell by reading you guys. Okay, let's get some life here. All right? I know that I am am the chief of sinners when it comes to committing this, these errors in my praying. Now, as we study this section of Scripture... Of the three religious activities he discusses, that is Jesus, the giving, the praying, and the fasting. You see that in chapter 6? More space, more words, and more time is given to, or emphasis is placed on praying. I think there's a reason for that. It's because prayer is more important than giving and fasting. Think about this. Giving certainly is important, but you're going to only give properly when you give out of a constant communion with God. Because when you are constantly in communion with God, you recognize who He is and who you are, that will result in a heart that is filled with gratitude. The closer you are to God, the more grateful and thankful you are. Right? Have you ever experienced that? And so that will result in what? If you have a grateful heart, giving. God loves what? A grateful giver, a cheerful giver? Absolutely. Fasting certainly is important too, but we all know that fasting is meaningless apart from prayer. So I want you to see that prayer is very basic to all giving and all fasting. (coughs) Now, What is the state of prayer today in the church with the instruction of our Lord that we have had over 2,000 years in this Sermon on the Mount and his instruction on prayer? Have we committed the same errors that 
The Jews did during Jesus' time. And yes, we have. Dare I say that in many cases that our prayers are just as substandard and inadequate as it was that of the Jews of Jesus' day. Is there not an abundance of praying going on that is self-centered? Yes, there is. Is there not plenty of prayer that is nothing more than pretense? Is there not a repetition of the same requests prayed over and over as if God needed reminded? Ever been guilty of that? There is more than enough praying that doesn't recognize the basic biblical divine standards for true prayer. Let me remind you of Romans 8.26, written after the instruction on the Lord's Prayer, that the Apostle Paul writes this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You know what Paul is saying there? In fact, everyone go there. Turn to Romans Paul is saying two things, Romans 8.26. We don't know what to pray for. And we don't know how we ought to pray for what we don't know how to pray for. You see that? (laughs) Do you want me to say that again? We don't know what to pray for. And we don't know how we ought to pray for what we don't know how to pray for. That's a pretty helpful situation, isn't it? Secondly, and thankfully, God is ever and always aiding our prayers through the Holy Spirit. Because we don't know how to pray or for what to pray for. Now, let me, let me just share my journey in learning how to pray. And it required a lot of time and practice and air and study. When I was got serious with God in college and would started going to you know campus crusade meetings and so on, um, they would have prayer meetings. I had my own little time with the Lord in my Bible study alone and devotional and would, would talk to God as best as I could at the time, but I'd never gone to like a half hour hour prayer meeting. And so I would sit there and just kind of listen to how people prayed. Um, and I also wanted to pray, and so I would just begin to talk with God as I learned about it and would talk to him. And as I would go to these prayer meetings, and I would pray before I'd share my faith, and we'd pray in Bible studies, and then we'd pray in church, and uh, you know, I was just praying an awful, awful lot. But one thing I noticed is that with the effort I was putting out in praying, I wasn't seeing a whole lot of my prayers answered. Can you relate to that? And so my junior year in college, um, we just come off a, um, a uh, my roommate and I just come off a, 
uh, conference where they really emphasized prayer. And so we were going to get up early and pray. And I did for all that spring semester. I got up early at like six in the morning, which is early for college. And we'd go upstairs to the, uh, the study room when no one was up at six in the morning. And I would pray. And I had a list of things that I wanted to talk to God about. And then I would talk to him about it and so on. And I would, was busy basically from six in the morning till ten at night with school and doing all ministry, which included praying. And I was just getting tired. And one day I was up there early in the morning faithfully praying. And I just felt like, I was like, this is a waste of time. It feels like my prayers are hitting the ceiling that they're not getting through. Because I'm exerting all this energy. And I am not seeing a whole lot of return for my investment of time. I must be doing something wrong. And so I began to uh, study the prayers, for example, of the Apostle Paul. And I began to study the Lord's Prayer. And this is over a period of years, as I started to adjust the way I was praying. I began to talk less to God. I also began to slow down and think, what was I asking God? Like One of the things I was doing was that I kept repeating his name over and over again. As if he needed to hear his name over and over again to keep his attention. And I realized that some of the things I was asking for was contradictory to his will. Number two, I'd ask him for one thing, and then later on in the prayer, I'd ask for something that was completely opposite. So if I was God, I would be confused as to what Chris wanted. I began reading books on prayer and how to pray. And over the years, I learned that prayer certainly includes asking and, and, and interceding for situations and people and so on. But now my prayer includes a whole heck of a lot more listening and worship. Some of the common prayer mistakes that I went through, I'm going to need a volunteer. So I'm not actually going to ask for a volunteer. I'm going to tell Ronan to come up here. I'll spare Shannon. How's that? Okay. This is how I would, would pray to Ronan. Now remember, God is a person, right? He exists as a, as a spirit, but he's also as a person in Jesus Christ. I would say, Ronan, how are you doing today, Ronan? And Ronan, I want you to get up in the morning. I want you to go to the grocery store, and I want you to get all these items I have in this list. And then when you're done with that, I want you to come home, and I want you to make do all the chores around the house. Do the laundry, clean up the kitchen, do the yard work, and so on. Okay, you with me so far? Okay, and then after that, Ronan, I want you to then take a rest. Then after that, Ronan, I want you to just go and do whatever you want. Thanks. (laughs) You're not done, Ronan, so. What did I just do? I babbled the whole time. Yeah, it was, there was, is that a relationship? Does that how he treats you? Is that how you treat him? <laughs> There's no communication there, is there? It's what I call list prayer. We bring to God a list as if he is this big gumball machine in the sky. And we put our time in, and it, hopefully it, it turns the knob enough that the door opens, the gumball flies out, and we get what we want. 
But that is how we tend to instinctively pray. Because we're told that prayer is what? It's talking to God, but it's also you already need to ask. And since we're so self-centered, there are things that we want that we are told to ask whatever it will be given to you, right? Ask and you shall receive. Seeking you will find all that. So once you read that, it's okay. God's going to give me what I want. I just need to ask. So then you ask for, and you practice that, and you just are talking the whole time. You're not interacting with God at all. You wonder why, and you realize maybe I don't have faith, and so you start working on faith, and you're asking and believing, and I believe, God, that if I ask anything in your name, oh, I need to ask in his name, so now I ask for all those things in the name of Ronan, so that Ronan will give me what I want. That is what I call list prayer, and that's how we, and what I saw modeled for me. And this is the downfall of being in a, uh, uh, an intellectual or reason-based society in, in Western America, or in America, that is, North America. But it's also a, a, a people that never really had a close relationship with God because they wouldn't want to stop and listen to God because they'd be afraid that God would tell you to do something that would be outside of Scripture. Therefore, God doesn't speak that way anymore, so you don't interact with him that way. Despite all the evidence to the contrary in the Bible. So there's that kind of prayer, and I was guilty of that for years. I'm a slow learner. Let me give you another error. Ronan, how you doing, Ronan? Ronan, it's good to see you, Ronan. Ronan, would you go ahead and, and do this for me, Ronan? And Ronan, Lord God, Ronan, Ronan, would you go ahead and also do this for me? There's some of you here, I won't mention your names. Why do you repeat God's name over and over and over and over and over and over again when you pray. If I talked to my wife that way, I don't know if we'd be married. Because she'd be tired of hearing her name. It would probably drive her insane. Why do we say it's what's called the Lord God Syndrome? Dear Lord God, Lord God, would you do this for me? Lord God, in your son's name. And Lord God, I mean... Why do we do that? You're uncomfortable. You're filling in the blanks. It's habit. It's a bad habit. He's not a person to you. It's really why we do it. This was the slowing down and thinking of what I was praying. Why am I saying that? Why do I keep repeating his name? If I believe he's a person, if I believe he's, I'm face to face with him by faith, how is he receiving me repeating his name over and over again? I don't treat other people that way. If I did, what would they think about me? He's not all there, right? And maybe that's what God thinks about us, that they continually repeat his name over and over again. What in the world are you asking of me? Why do you keep repeating my name? And so if you're stuck there, and I know some of you are, you've got to move past that. So slow down. Think about what you're saying to him. Think about what you're asking him. And even more radical, since your father knows your name, ask him a question and then shut up. Stop and listen. And try and learn his ways of how he will communicate to you if you believe he's a person.
If you don't believe he's a person, you can come to my office during the week, and I'll convince you he's a person. But if you believe that you are created for a relationship with God, then your prayers better match that you believe that. Repeating his name, coming to him with a list, and the third point, ah, sorry Ron, I don't need you anymore, but... It's what I call the, I call it the three to five minute prayer. Do you really think that three to five minutes of praying, if you even do it that long, is enough? No, because what does he say? When you pray, he assumes that you're going to spend time with him. And why does he assume you're going to spend time with him? Because he loves you and he's just sacrificed his son, given you so much, he is hoping and expecting for the love that he showed that would be a return of your love for him by spending time with him. Again, if I spent three to five minutes a day with my wife, and that's it, it wouldn't be good. I wouldn't be happily married. If I spend three to five minutes every other day with my wife, how is my marriage going to be? So, you get my point. All of those things I am guilty of and have gone through, I'm speaking out of experience. And I think you guys are guilty of them too. Because you don't know how to pray. You are like, we are like, because I am still learning. We are like, In one sense, the hypocrites, the Jews of the day. You know, we don't pray to be seen, but our prayers aren't up to God's standard, His kingdom standard of prayers. And He doesn't want that, so guess what He does? I'm going to tell you how to pray. One of the, I will never forget this, when I first got here, we have a number of prayer meetings and I began teaching you guys how to pray, I said that hallowed be thy name in the Lord's Prayer is a warning against self-centered prayer. Don Teodoro's jaw dropped. When we left that evening, he got out of his car, came over and shook my hands because he had never heard that concept in the Lord's Prayer. That hallowed be thy name, and I'll explain that to you later on in the sermon series, it's a warning against self-centered prayer. God is to be first in your prayers. Yet the way I approached Ronan, when we approach God, it is all about me. That's why the death of self is the beginning of true prayer. But we'll go over all that as we go through the sermon series. Now here's the challenge. I began with the story of Moneyball. And what was the point of that story? Something's got to change. So I'm asking you this morning, are you wise or foolish? There are basically three types of people in the world, according to the Bible. The wise person, the foolish person, and the evil person. For our sermon today, we're going to look at the first two, the wise and the fool. Now, each of these two people exhibit a particular behavior in any time or context. For example... Turn your Bibles to Proverbs verse, chapter 9, verse 9. 
Proverbs 9, verse 9. This is the wise person. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Now, what I'm about to say to you, um, I think for those of you that are in working with other employees, other coworkers, those of you that have uh, people that report to you, that are under you, and also those of you that have bosses, okay, those of you that are in relationships with, with people, uh, whether it's a parent-child relationship or a husband-wife or just a friend-to-friend, this will all be relatable to you. So, the wise person, in regards to receiving instruction and changing behavior, in other words, I am giving you instruction and hoping you'll change your behavior and how you will pray, the wise person, one could say, that when the truth presents itself, the wise person sees the light, takes it in, and makes adjustments. In other words, wise people hear the truth, you listening to me, and make the necessary changes to be aligned with the truth. If you give instruction to a wise man, what does he do with it? He becomes wiser. If you teach a righteous man, a wise man, he will increase in learning. So wise people hear the truth and make the necessary changes to be aligned with that truth. If you have to review somebody that is under you, and you see these flaws in their performance, and you go to them and you are presenting the truth to them, you're going to get a few responses. The wise person will take that feedback and do what with it? Digest it and make the changes. You have an employee like that, you don't get rid of that employee because they are very hard to find. Right? I know Colette's dealing with that as well. So, yeah. As a result, the wise person learns and they get better. They increase in learning. Now, why does the wise person receive feedback and change? In other words, I'm hoping out there there are some wise people for me giving you feedback. Because the wise person has built in their character integrity. And I prefer Dr. Henry Clouds, the Christian book author and psychiatrist, and leadership uh, guru, his definition of integrity from his book on integrity. And this is how he defines integrity. Integrity is the courage to meet the demands of reality. I always love that definition. I have hammered that into my children. Integrity, the courage to meet the demands of reality. So reality, or the truth, and by the way, what is truth? Jesus Christ said, I am truth. The scriptures also say about Jesus that in Jesus is found what? The reality lies in Jesus. So reality, truth, 
your circumstances in life have been orchestrated, your reality, by the truth, Jesus Christ. So if you make $50,000 a year living over here, and you have two kids and a wife, your reality or the truth of your situation is you can only afford so much of a house. Right? If you can even buy one. If you make $300,000 a year, you can certainly afford a home with that many in your family. That is your reality and truth. The reality is that Jesus Christ created this world so that I cannot go to my rooftop and jump off there and thinking I'll just float away. Because what is reality? What's the truth? Gravity will push me down to the ground. So reality, or the truth, the wise person can see it and make the necessary changes to meet the standards of the truth or what reality demands of them. Does that make sense? If you're not performing well enough in a class, what you are doing, is it good enough? So what must you do? See it for what it is, change how you're studying in hopes that you will perform better. Do you know, and some of the younger, this is probably the best thing you get this sermon, is if you can do that, if you can embrace reality as your friend and make changes so that you can perform better, you will do well in life. But it involves embracing, first of all, seeing reality, then in, in, in implementing it in your life and making changes. Someone said to themselves, we have bad prayer habits, right? If the way that you are praying isn't working, why are you praying the same way? Does that make sense? If you aren't seeing your prayers answered because the reality is, what is this book full of when it comes to praying? People that are praying and what's happening? God's answering their prayers. So what you are doing, and you've already agreed that you have a substandard prayer life, if it's not working, you need to find another way and you need to learn, become a student, receive the feedback be a wise person, implement it, and change. But that's, it all goes back to, for the wise person, their character. Is it within them? Do they have the, the courage to meet the demands of reality? You with me so far? Or you can be the fool. Turn to Proverbs 17.10. This one you relate to because I have to spend less time in this because this is our culture. And this is us. This is us. <laughs> Proverbs 17.10 A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. My son Mark is giggling probably because he works with what he considers fools. Because he's got people that are just don't get it and won't do their jobs in terms of taking off and on tires. And the amount of stress it causes for the shop and the company. As you know, for people that you work with that simply aren't pulling their weight, they're a drain. So, in regards to receiving instruction and changing behavior, 
For a fool, one could say that the fool, now listen to this, tries to adjust the truth so he does not have to adjust to it. Does that make sense? Whereas the wise person sees the light, takes it in, and makes adjustment to the truth, the fool adjusts the truth so he does not have to adjust to it. The outplaying of that in our culture is, for example, the idea of tolerance. No longer are certain sexually immoral behaviors considered to be wrong. I struggle with this tendency, so therefore I will say it's not wrong. Everyone else is wrong, therefore I don't have to change my life. And for certain people that do not think that murder is wrong and want to adjust the truth about murder and kill people, what do we do with them? They go to jail. They're taken out of society. So a fool rejects feedback, resists it, explains it away, and does nothing to adjust to meet its requirements. They do not have the courage to meet the demands of reality. You follow me so far? So the fool is, listen to this, and, and you know, all of us are guilty of this. They're defensive, blame others, make excuses, rationalize away their behavior. They show little to no remorse. And boy, I love this one. They see themselves as the victim. I wrote down here in my notes, I have just described 21st century American culture. Right? The fool does not have the necessary amount of integrity within their character. Thus, they lack the courage to meet the demands of reality. Folks, changing behavior always goes back to character. Years ago, it may have been 20 years ago, Fortune 500 companies in their leadership training realized that the skill-based training that they were giving their employees while ignoring character, it wasn't working. They completely revamped their leadership training. And I saw the, the curriculum for General Motors in their leadership training, and it was all character-based because my mother's cousin's husband worked for GM, and we were close to them. And she brought home what he was learning, and she shared it with us. Now, character-based leadership is in basically everything they were saying was already in here. Okay? But ultimately what I'm asking you to do when it comes to changing the way you're praying is I am challenging and wanting to see what you're made of. Because I'm going to present to you reality through the word of God. Do you have the courage to meet God's demands for reality in regards to prayer? Now what does this talk of the wise and the foolish person have to do with prayer? Simply this. Most, if not all of us, do not know how to pray. And we must change the way that we pray.
And this is why I'm here. You need to learn how to study the Bible. You need to learn how to share your faith. You need to learn how to pray. What I've learned, I will pass on to you. Jesus said the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. I don't see that and feel that enough in my life. Do you? And just as the Jews had strayed from the Old Testament teachings on prayer and had become impotent and ineffectual prayers, so we are powerless and ineffectual prayers too. Our praying, our current praying, does not meet the standards of the kingdom of God. So, let's enroll in the school of prayer. Let's learn together how to pray from the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your first assignment, your homework, I simply want you to meditate on this. Now, it's a lot for you that are going to be tested in the adult science school class regarding the gospel, but meditate on Matthew 6, 5 through 13. Internalize it. Talk to God. Talk with God, not to Him. Talk with God about it. And just by the way, just off the top of my, my head here, don't define prayer as talking to God. I caught myself on that. Prayer is talking with God. It's a two-way conversation. If it's a relationship. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to close. Ironically with a prayer. Would you stand with me? Lord, we need to learn how to pray. And I, up here teaching on a subject as vast and yet as vitally important as prayer, I have, Father, in no way arrived at how to pray. But, Lord, I I come to you and I ask that you would empower me to pass on not my thoughts, but your thoughts to us all as we learn how to pray as you taught your disciples how to pray. And Lord, would as we learn to pray biblically, would you shake the very foundations of this community and mightily advance your kingdom here in Auburn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.